You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, a weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today I'm talking with Imi Dean from Roche. We talk about real-world evidence and demystify it. So stay tuned and now the music. In today's podcast, we will talk about real-world data, real-world evidence, pragmatic studies, and all these big data buzzwords that are out there and how they um, actually work together. It will be quite, quite interesting experience. Imi works in this field for quite some time. I'm working in this field for quite some time. So it was a lot of fun to talk with him about this topic. If you like this podcast, it would be awesome if you could share it with a couple of colleagues. Just send the Effective Statistician link to them. Let them know that they can listen to the podcast through their smartphone app, through the browser, on YouTube, on Spotify, pretty much everywhere where you can listen to a podcast, you can listen to The Effective Statistician. So it would be really, really great if you could share it because it's for free. I know it helps a lot of people. I get a lot of really, really positive feedback about it. And so please tell colleagues, tell friends about it so that they can benefit from it as well. The podcast is produced in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefits of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library, where there's about 200 videos already, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. The reduced rates for non-higher income countries is just 20 pounds per year. And it's also really only 95 pounds for high income countries. So there's really no financial barrier here. Visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode of The Effective Statistician. Today, I'm speaking with uh, Imi from Roche, who has previously worked at uh, Gillette. And today, we are talking about real-world evidence or real-world data, which is a really, really big buzzword. And we want to untangle a little bit what that means, have a couple of different perspectives on real-world evidence, um, what it means what the data side of it is, what the methodological side of it is, uh, where it can bring value. We hope you'll get a lot of fun as well as learning from this episode. But first, Imi, maybe you can introduce yourself first. Excellent. Thank you so much. So uh, first of all, good morning. It's a, This is kind of a big moment for me. So I've, I've been listening to your podcast actually for quite some time. I remember when you first made the post on LinkedIn that you'd started it. And I'd shared this with everybody at university. So it's interesting how this has come full circle. 
huge fan. Awesome. Awesome to have a listener as, a, <laughs> as an interview guest. Always very good. So, yeah, um, I'm a uh, real-world data scientist at Roche. I've been with the company now for, for, for just, for just it's, it's actually a year, uh, one year and two weeks. That's how closely we measure time, you know, uh, keeping it data-driven. I work mainly in the fields of oncology or, or malignant and non-malignant uh, hematology. Yeah, I've um, trained. I think as, as most people really, I, I got into this by accident. So I started off my career, you know, studying medical sciences. And I had one lecture where they were showing us, um, we, we, we had this amazing uh, professor who was really showing us just a linear regression model, right? And it was blood pressure and, I'll never forget this, risk of myocardial infarction. And seeing how this, you know, really simple Y equals MX plus C, how this is actually used to predict somebody's risk and allow somebody to understand something about these two variables, like uh, applied to medicine, I became hooked. Uh, absolutely became hooked. So went and studied epidemiology, then carried on and did uh, machine learning. And yeah, the rest is history. So yeah, that's a bit about me. Okay, very good. And you now work a lot on real-world data and real-world evidence, or RWE. What does RWE for you mean, actually? Yeah, wow. How long do you have? <laughs> <laughs> One episode. <laughs> Real-world evidence really is, um, uh, we need to make a distinction, right? Okay, so, so let's talk about RWD first, so real-world data. Real-world evidence is something. Yeah. So real-world data really is, for me, is, so, is anything that is generated outside, a, uh, outside your traditionally controlled randomized experiment. So for me, this could be a prospective EMR, prospective cohort study, a retrospective cohort study. It could uh, be anything that's uh, anything that comes out of uh, you know large databases. Um, but also your, but also as uh, we were discussing earlier, the the idea that from pragmatic trials, right? If you have a, mm. if you start off with let's say a Twix design, a a, a cohort, an observational cohort study that you randomly sample from, I would contest that even though it's a randomized design, this is because it's taking place in the real world, so to speak. Then it's from real world data. So I think it's anything that's generated in a normal setting where a patient or where healthcare is delivered under everyday conditions. Yeah. I think there's some gray areas there as well. Yeah. So, so if you have these pragmatic studies that where you try to have just the randomization as, as an intervention and nothing else, then that is already very, very close to real world data, isn't it? It depends, right? If, if you're comparing an intervention against standard of care, we have our fabulous new drug and, and we want to compare it against standard of care, but in really the real world setting, I think if you set up a, a, a pragmatic trial where your only intervention, as you said, is the randomization between whether the patient is on the intervention or not, I would contend that, that this actually forms real world data or this generates real world data. Yeah. And I think the, the amount of real world data is increasing a lot. So we have more and more electronic health records. We have more and more our variables, everything that's, you know, we track our personal health all the time with all kind of different things. And there's more and more these things are connected against each other. I was at the last PSI conference, I was seeing a poster of um, Scandinavian registries and where they had all these different databases from 
that contained demographic data, that contained uh, socioeconomic data, that contained medical data over long, long periods of times. So, so you know, even lifelong uh, data for, for uh, lots of people where you can link them all together and have a very, very holistic data set for nationwide, so to say. These things are more and more becoming the norm and uh, for yeah, sometimes also in this kind of big data buzzword wow. area. Yes, Nick. <laughs> yeah, it's a, these huge perspective registries where you have all of this longitudinal information, you know, uh, are incredible. They allow us to really gain, uh, you know, tremendous insights, um, not just not just from, you know, a, a uh, understanding you, you, something. You, uh, and it's important, right? You, what the burden of disease is or what a socioeconomic, uh, socioeconomic cost is. But also, if we're correct, if we're collecting the right kind of information, we can really start to understand things about the, the pathology of disease. We can start to use these data sets actually for drug discovery to generate hypotheses. And this is what I, what I was getting at earlier. Like real world data are these mass, mass data sets or small data sets that we have. But real world evidence is actually turning that into something meaningful. And for mm. me, really, uh, the exciting thing, the real world sort of uh, side of things is so exciting and so much fun to work in is the, the constant need of, of, of evolution and thought on methodology. Yeah. If you have a real world data set, you can't take anything for granted. I make this, uh, this analogy when I'm teaching is that if the real world data is a book, you know, if you're reading a book, the methodology is the way that you understand the language. And you can take nothing for granted. You really must think through everything from your endpoints, your, what, the, what the actual variables even mean, how the data has been generated. All of these different aspects one must consider and think through very carefully uh, to generate really meaningful evidence. Yeah, so, so I think that is a really important point. So first, you need to very thoroughly understand how the data is generated, because that's the only way you will understand where biases will come from. So where is this population coming from? Is that only, for example, primary care uh, population, or is that only a specialist population, which will drive kind of, you know, what type of patients you will have uh, in there uh, that are probably not, you know, reflective of the overall population or is that from a insurer that is primarily targeting let's say lower socioeconomic populations or is that from a you know a specific area of the country where there's you know maybe a specific industry that drives a lot of uh, different health issues so i once had a, a discussion with uh, someone working in the in pharmacies and he said well he worked in three different pharmacies across germany and in each pharmacy there was completely different types of medical pharmaceuticals sold because uh, in one area there was you know it was really dark and rural and um, very foggy in, in the winter lots of antidepressant in other areas, there was, you know, a specific type of wine that was uh, very considered and lots of things that has to, had to do with uh, kind of controlling your stop, stomach and yet, yet other areas that were completely different. So, so, so because there was heavy industry and then there was much more kind of COPD and respiratory uh, drugs. So 
knowing where the data is coming from, how it's generated, what are potentially these mechanisms that drive the different biases is really, really important. Otherwise, you, you can't frame it in the end. Uh, your answer is correct. 100%. Well, it's honestly, like I think, the most crucial step. One is if you're fortunate enough to be building a data set, so if you're doing, a let's say, a, a prospective or retrospective study where you're actually going out to, 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 to sites and to hospitals and you're recruiting patients or you're, you're looking at medical records and, and abstracting retrospectively, like thinking about how this data is, is generated and how it's captured, but more so than that is thinking about, okay, well, is the standard of care that I'm, if I'm looking at a particular disease, am I sure that the sites that I've selected and that the population I'm looking at is representative of the, of the wider population? And is the standard of care really the standard? Am I looking at, let's say, you know, uh, really academic centers that really do like interesting experimental things? Um, if I'm thinking of doing something uh, like, you know, for mm. a regulatory submission, like using, you know, a, a external control arm or something, is this... Is this standard of care? Is are the ways these are, are these patients are monitored? Are the, the, the the way these patients are treated? Is this really? Is this really what happens in practice? I don't think we can underscore the, the the importance of understanding how your data is generated and what it means before you do anything else. Yeah, yeah. There's one uh, interesting story where someone looked looked at some propensity scoring um, and compared one treatment versus the other, and Interestingly, there was one fraction of the uh, population that got a propensity of, of zero, flat out. Yeah. And what, what's happening here? You know, what, why do these patients have 100% probability to get one treatment and 0% probability to get the others? <laughs> okay. Well, it was contraindicated for the other. Of course, that is a patient population exactly. where, you know, any treatment differences doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Knowing that you in your selection of the, of your observational uh, patients, you restrict it to only those patients where any inferences or where your question of interest is actually applicable. This is uh, one of these areas to know how the data is generated. And also to follow up on that, it's ensuring that the question you want to ask, the question that we ask of the data, is it answerable using the data set you're thinking of or using the the, the, the study design your your no the, the data generation mechanism you're thinking of. So if I want to understand something about the pathology of the disease, if I want to look at the gen if I want to understand, you know, if I want to investigate why a particular subgroup of patients don't respond well to a drug, I would really want to have a, a, a really high uh, I really call them high resolution data sets. You know, it's so like an EMR that has a that that has genetic profiles of uh, these patients where, where we can really look at things, you know, using an insurance, uh, uh, do, do doing an analysis on that, using insurance claims data, this really is nonsensical. So really thinking through, you know, this is the question I have, what is the best data source or the best data set that I can use to, 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 to help me answer that question? Is this data set suited to, to answering the question? It's probably a more eloquent way of putting it across. Yeah, but, but I think it starts even further. It starts even sooner with kind of getting the question really, really correctly phrased at the beginning. Because very often you'll get a question that is maybe very generic, like what are the patients that best 
respond to our treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is actually not a very, very precise question because is it, are, are you talking about responding better than standard of care? Are you talking about responding better than placebo? Are you talking about responding at all? So, and depending on, you know, refining that question, that will drive whether you go, for example, in a clinical trial, whether you go in an observational setting uh, and other things. And also, are you more interested in kind of baseline responders? So before you actually make a treatment decision or do you think about, okay, we give patients a treat, uh, the treatment and then, you know, see throughout the treatment whether we stop it, which is another. Is it, are you interested in to see early indicators that a patient will respond later? Or are you interested in seeing, okay, at which time point is actually, it's very, very unlikely that the patient later will respond. So it's better to stop treatment there. So these are all very, very different questions. However, they are very often kind of lumped up in this question about what are our responders. Exactly. And this really gets, I think, I don't think, by the way, this is just a, you know, a, a problem for us who work in real-world data. I, I, I know, like many of my colleagues, you know, working clinical trials, who are also pulling their hair out when they get this kind of question. Like, what do you yeah. mean? Um, no, it's, uh, I think, with any kind of scientific exercise, uh, really getting the question down and ensuring, ensuring that your understanding of the question is the same as your stakeholders, that your question is, you know, straightforward, simple, and answerable is the key before you you think of anything else right and also the as you were discussing you know who are responders there's so many different ways one can answer that question and and what the output of that should be would you like a comparative effectiveness study where we compare the intervention versus you know the standard of care in the real world and we come up with a treatment a treatment effect estimate or would you like uh, us to produce a a prognostic model uh, we develop an algorithm that will predict whether a patient's going to be a responder or not uh, to maybe be used in a clinical decision support system. Do we want to look at comparative safety? As you said, yeah, there's uh, all these patients' responders is a little too broad, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so so if we think about now, we have a question that would be most suitable for some real-world evidence data how does then the data set and the methodology for you come in? Is it first the methodology and then the data set, or is it the other around? What, what, how do you think about it? For, for me, honestly, the two are so intertwined. Once we, and, and also, I think really in the, the real world sphere, you can't pull one away from the other. They're so intertwined. It's, it's, it's incredible. So I think when, once we have a question, and it's you, let, let's say we're, we, we have a comparative effectiveness question that we want to use for a regulatory submission. I think the minute we have that already, we're thinking, okay, what kind of methods can we apply? What kind of approaches can we take? Are we thinking here of really uh, uh, trying to match something to a clinical, so using a similar inclusion exclusion criteria to a clinic, to, to a randomized experiment? And then are we going to do propensity scoring or shall we use instrumental variable analysis? So already these are these questions are coming into your mind. Then when you're looking at the data sets, you know, for me, before I do anything, like uh, step one is uh, after, you know, understanding the, the, the data generation mechanism, et cetera, is really creating the table one, 
I think there is nothing more useful in the life as a statistician than a table one, your subject disposition table. This really gives you, like, it's a, if this was a book, this would be, you know, the, the introductory chapter, right? This is your population. And they look at that and you try to understand, you, you try to, to, to really start to see if you can spot anything. So disposition, including baseline characteristics. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah of course. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Baseline ca- yeah. Ca- characteristics, lab values. And uh, really for, for me, I have, uh, I think everybody has their own little obsession in the world of stats. For, 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 for me, really, I, uh, I, I love missing data methodology. So really looking at, and, and this is something that, that, that always my colleague, that some colleagues are quite uncomfortable with, you know, in the clinic, in the interventional setting, a patient, you know, the missing data is, is, is seen as, a, as, as really not much of a problem. Patients tend to turn up when they're supposed to turn up most of the time. Well, in the real world, things are a little bit more complex. So really starting to think about all of these different aspects. Sometimes I remember um, a couple of years ago, uh, I had a study where I was using multiple imputation and propensity scoring. And there was actually very little in the literature about which way you should really do this. So I ended up doing, you know, trying maybe three or four different methods and then doing some sensitivity analysis. But uh, I think that really is the beauty of uh, real world data. Like once you get into the question, like, it is so much fun. Like you It's great. In in terms of missing data, I think what we need to highlight here is at the moment we are just speaking about missing data at baseline. Yep. When you hear about missing data in the in the context of clinical trials, we often speak about missing data that happens later on in the study um, because patients drop out, because patients switch treatment or you know discontinue whatsoever. But here it already starts that you have big sets of data that are missing at baseline. So, and I can, I know exactly that these can be quite influential. I once was working on a, uh, on a study in schizophrenia where um, we were looking into drug abuse at, at baseline. And it was basically yes, no, or missing. <laughs> and guess what? Those with missing had the worst prediction. <laughs> It's always the way. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, <laughs> missing doesn't mean, you know, necessarily says it's missing at random. Very often it's, it's very informative missing. And so sometimes you can even then treat this, this missing category as its own category. So, yeah. And that's what we ended up doing in the end. We said, yes, no, unknown. And Unknown was really kind of also something that people can relate to. The psychiatrist that I was working with, yeah, I think we know what kind of people these are <laughs> that will not answer anything. <laughs> It's it, it really so, so. So yeah, missing at baseline is a is really at times like a, something one really must consider, and that's where the, the you know the old maxim that you know you try to deal you know if you're you really try to deal with your with the Uh, potential uh, issues in your study at the design level. So then you have to reduce your uh, potential headaches at the analytical level. Sometimes you can see, you see in protocols, for, 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 for example, patients must have X, Y, and Z variable. But also sometimes at baseline, you do find missing data, but also in the follow-up as well. How do you deal with it? And for me, I'm, I'm always a little surprised when you see missing data is taken as a, it's almost a secondary consideration, right? So, and I think like a, You know, uh, the thing that I think that keeps us all awake at night is really trying to reduce the amount of bias and confounding in any kind of inference. You know, our results or our 
our work can really impact what happens to the patient's bedside, can really impact whether a drug is developed or not, whether we go into a new disease area or not. And everything we do reduces, uh, is, is tailored to get the most accurate estimate possible. Well, keeping, you know, not dealing with missing data properly, this, you know, throws mountains of bias and confounding in your results, really questions everything. And the methodologies are nothing new, you know, uh, just, you know, amazing papers out there really explaining this methodology quite well, how even now we have this software package. It's, it's not like, like in the old days, you know, we have, a, whether it's SAS or R or state, it's, it's so easy. It's so easy to implement. The, the, the level of computing power is, again, it, it, it just, it, it yeah. really baffles me when we, uh, when we leave missing data as a, a secondary consideration in our design or in our analyses. Actually, I think that is also where really the fun of the statisticians comes in. So the, yeah. as you say, you know, in lots of these retrospective uh, sets, there's only so much you can do in your kind of protocol. You know, the, the data is as it is and you can, um, not design it differently. You can't influence it a lot. You need to spend much more brain power to make sense out of it. There's, however, one thing that you said about the uh, confounding and bias. Yes, I completely agree. We need to understand biases and confounding, but I'm not sure we always need to reduce it for at any price because my perception is um, we should always be careful about this variance bias trade-off yeah so so oh, yeah. Uh, you can you can you know reduce bias so much that in the end you have huge confidence intervals and you can't claim anything anymore so 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 sometimes i think being a little bit off target knowing somehow how much you're off target but then at least being precise is better than being exactly on bull, bull's eye, <laughs> yeah. but you know, never even hitting the plate. So, so, <laughs> so you, uh, you know, they they end up asking, you know, so is the drug effective? Yes or no? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm definitely correct, but yes, it's somewhere between yes and no. I'm not sure. <laughs> no, no, I completely agree. Yep, yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Okay, so in terms of uh, now, we have the question: um, How do you? find out about what is the right data set uh, to, to have the right question. What are, what are the approaches you take? For me, it all depends on the, it depends what we're using it for and what the question is. But, but where do you find these data sets? Do you predominantly look in for, for in-house data sets or what's your approach? For me to, to, to find a real world data as a, a real world data set, again, it, it really depends. So I think for me, step one is I do what's called the data landscaping, you know, which is, as close to a systematic literature review that you can get. So really start to do a really thorough literature review, um, looking for anybody who's published absolutely anything on the subject I'm looking at, whether they've used a, a cohort study or an EMR or a claims data sets or, or, or anything, and, and really see what's been done already. Mm -hmm. Then you sort of look at the data sets there and you see the variables they've collected. And you think about, again, that data capture mechanism, how well the data set is, is the data of the resolution that one would need to answer, you know, the, 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 the question then they have, then you make a determination. Can I use this data that's already out there again 
So do I use a, you know, so a secondary data analysis? Or do I need to do my own, do I need to generate my, my own data? So do I need to go recruit patients? Do I need to go and, you know, go to different sites and extract through an EMR? Um, but also now that um, uh, we have some really nice in-house assets as well. So really one uh, has like, you know, a universe of different sources and, and, and you investigate them and think. And there's always trade-offs, right? You will always get the variables you want in the way you want if you do your own study. Yeah. If you collect your own data, oh my God, it's incredible. You, you can set up your own ECRF. Uh, use, uh, you're in really close contacts with but, the sites. But it costs 10 million and you exactly. need five years. <laughs> so, you know, just a slight trade-off, you know? What's 10 years in the context of, uh, of uh, fun? But no, no, exactly. But then if you have, uh, if you're using somebody else's data set, you have what you have. And again, sometimes that's absolutely fine. And sometimes that's more than enough. You know, the, the, amount of com the amount of comparative safety I've done in market scan or biometrics plus these, these huge com uh, commercial claims data sets, um, where they've been really informative and really helpful and actually, you know, impacted patient care have, have been superb. Uh, and, 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 you know, that there's no need for, for answering a question at a pharmacovigilance level to uh, sometimes to really do these, these, uh, these big studies. But other times it's, it's important. And it, again, it comes down to what's the trade-off, what's the use, and is the data set appropriate? And there's so many different aspects you, you have to answer and think about when, when you're choosing one or trying to find one. Yeah, I think that is a big difference between if you predominantly work in clinical trials and whether you work on these real-world data side. Because in the clinical trials, you basically know all the data that you that's relevant for you. You, you. That's your study or the study within your team. You know, there's only so many studies on your new compound and they are all run by your company or by maybe company, partner companies that you're working together with. However, if you look into this real-world data uh, topic, you will have lots of lots of different uh, opportunities to look into data into internal data external data um work into collaboration with um government bodies with uh, academic bodies and um all these come with their different methodological and data intrinsic strengths and limitations but also practical things yeah so so are there for certain uh, data sets is there a certain procedures that you need to go through to make sure that um, data privacy is kept or is that yeah. a data set that is owned by a certain key opinion leaders that you just need to have a good relationship with or is that something that you readily have access through your internal resources so all these practical things i think yeah play a big role in our day-to-day -day life as well Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Having having those collaborations with with you know academic institutions and uh, you know key researchers is essential. Um, you know, ensuring you know one hundred percent. You know, we uh, that that the patient privacy and that excuse me that 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 that, that you know we maintain that patient privacy and we ensure that you, everything is is compliance is 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 incredibly important. Uh, is, is 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 fundamentally important to the work we do. But just I mean a point that I um. I think we all share with my colleagues, actually, we, we were speaking about this the other day. And I think, you know, in real world data, you know, uh, your, a patient has, has, has given you, has consented 
to you having access to what is effectively, you know, you, the most personal data to anyone can share, the medical record, you know? And they do this mostly altruistically. They, they, they want, they, they say, listen, here is my data. Here's my information. Use this for research. We think genuinely that, you know, as, as a statistician, as a data scientist, you have an absolute responsibility to ensure that you get the most appropriate insights from this data possible to really drive the to really drive an innovation and 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 and, and drug development in that field. So this is why I think you know really in, in real world data that this huge focus on methodology really is there because you want to ensure that you can you can understand what you're seeing as clearly as possible. Yeah. The other p nice thing about it, if you have these uh, publicly available data sets, everything becomes much more transparent because okay. it's, you know, everybody can, you know, access this data set. Everybody can have the same approaches as you do and basically rerun your analysis or tweak it. So uh, I think that is actually a very, very nice way to be much more transparent, much more, um, uh, give more generate more trust through that and um, yeah. actually learn from others because you see what's, uh, you can replicate things much easier. Definitely. I think this is really something that's, uh, that's really fantastic in the, in the real world uh, community. Actually, if, if one looks at many of the papers published or many of the studies published, like quote, uh, some of the things I'm seeing now are people, are people even uh, uploading like iPython notebooks or, or, <laughs> uh, or scripts up so you can actually go and interrogate and see like, Oh, How did you build that model? Oh, I see an assumption here. I'm not. I want to see if I can change this around. And it's it, 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 honestly, you become so much more engaged in each other's research. And you know, at the end of the day, we we you know, as scientists, I think usually you, you have to be open to that, right? It's 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 the only way that 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 our methodology becomes better, and we validate each uh, we we validate the insights we're we're generating. Um, so yeah, no, no, completely agree. Yeah, I think that that's where we should get to it. Maybe that's an area where the clinical trials can actually learn from in terms of uh, transparency. And uh, maybe that is the future, especially with these initiatives where you can request data, clinical study request, uh, I think .com, how it's called. And maybe in the future, you can even request the, the specific analysis and, and so the program forms so that it becomes uh, more transparent. So as a kind of final question and to, to sum it up a little bit, what makes, you know, what are kind of for you aspects that make really good real-world evidence? What are some aspects? So for me, I, 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 I love the... So, so I absolutely love my discipline. Like, uh, I, I, I'm the guy who looks forward to Monday mornings. That, that's uh, where we all want to be, isn't it? <laughs> so, for me, like, um, where, where I really get uh, energized from uh, in, in, in real world evidence is I don't ever think that real world evidence and is yeah. ever going to replace the, the the RCT. I don't think that's how they the, they they, they complement and augment each other incredibly well. I, th I, I love it, or, uh, or I, I, I get very energized when you uh, are able to allow a drug to get to market faster. Uh, so, so to really 
deliver that benefit to 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 a patient population. So if that's being able to run a single arm study where you have a real world data control arm, if it's appropriate, you know, if if if, if one if you know if 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 it meets certain requirements, etc., and, and and statistically and methodologically and scientifically and medically, it, it makes sense doing that and really uh, speeding up drug development. I think is is superb. I, I think it's fantastic when you're able to use real world evidence to to to, to really. Uh, learn something novel about a disease. I think that's really, really good fun, especially now with these uh, clinical genomic data sets. I think that's 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 really an exciting feel. Also, for, 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 uh, for me, is really being able to work on regulatory aspects, whether that's, you know, looking at comparative effectiveness and, and safety in the real world. And I think the beauty of this field is, is, is really almost every... Uh, uh, even though epidemiology, so I think real-world evidence is, is, is really built on epidemiology, which is the backbone of evidence-based medicine. I think now it's it's really developed now where it's uh, in this interesting place where there's the it's uh, if you think of a Venn diagram between statistics uh, uh, or I mean biostats, uh, epi, and uh, computer science with the machine learning. I think that's that's really where where we are somewhere. I think uh, almost every every month we're thinking of new. Ways where where RWD and RWE can really bring value to to the work we do, but yeah, I I've, I think this is a we're really at an interesting we're really at an interesting stage. I think with the 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 amounts of high resolution data we're generating, I think we're going to uh, we're really going to be able to bring uh, incredible insights and and really support and 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 hopefully you know further drive uh, uh, drug developments to get you know dr- uh, therapeutics to patients quicker faster and cheaper yeah. that is a really really nice summary because uh, real world evidence is then something of high value if it drives high value decision making and if it enables things to go yeah as you say faster make patients uh, benefit uh, more for, from treatments and um, understand the, the diseases better. Thanks so much for your passionate uh, discussion. <laughs> Thank you so much for the podcast. As I said, really, I'm, a, I'm honest to God, an avid listener. I'm a huge fan. So, yeah, this is, uh, you know, if uh, after this, maybe you need to send me an autograph or something. <laughs> and and off the record, that wasn't triggered. I, I didn't know that you would <laughs> speak so highly about the podcast during this interview. So thanks so much for the feedback. That really makes my day. No, no, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain, who helped with the show in the background and makes it so much more easier for me. Thank you for listening. Please visit theeffectivestatistician.com to find the show notes and learn more about our podcast to boost your career as a statistician in the health sector. And please tell your colleagues about it. It means so much to me and it will surely help them as this podcast helps you and lots of lots of your peers already. We have hundreds of downloads now per, per week, so it's proof to that there's a lot of helpful material in here and it helps people to better work, to more effectively work. So 
your colleagues will surely benefit from that as well. So, as always, I'm ending with reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.